Hello, my name is Chiara Giorgetti and I am Professor of Law at Richmond Law School and a Senior Fellow at the International Claims and Reparations Centre at Columbia Law School. Welcome to the second lecture of this mini-series on international investment law. In the first lecture, I introduced IIL and situated it in the larger context of public international law, and then explored some introductory and key concepts that are unique to IIL, and namely the definition of foreign investor and of foreign investment to which the treaty terms apply. In my second lecture, I will focus on the main substantive principles that characterize international investment law. In my third lecture, I will then explore the unique dispute settlement feature of IIL, and namely International Investment Arbitration, or Investor States Dispute Settlement, ISDS. And in my fourth and final lecture, I will discuss some of the criticism that IIL and ISDS are facing and some of the ongoing reform processes that have resulted thereof. As seen in the first lecture, while there is no overarching treaty that regulates IIL generally, like we find for trade at the WTO or for the sea at UNCLOS, a number of BITs and certain regional and specific treaties, like the Energy Charter Treaty, collectively also known as IIS, provide for generally very similar provisions and therefore create a largely shared framework for IIL. The substantive legal st standards of protection included in these international treaties include provisions related to expropriation, as well as the host state's obligation to provide fair and equitable treatment, full protection and security, national treatment, as well as an obligation to refrain from arbitrary and discriminatory measures. In talking about substantive principle of investment protection, which, as I remember, rooted in general international public law, expropriation is the appropriate point to start both because it plays a fundamental role in IIL now, but also because it is a key principle historically. Expropriation is the taking of property from a foreign investor for a public purpose. Expropriation is not an invention of IIL, but it rather goes back to general international law related to diplomatic protection, the treatment of aliens, and minimum standard of treatment. The famous PCAJ case of Horjou factory in 1928 is at heart about expropriation. Indeed, in the case, Germany claimed reparation from Poland for expropriating a privately owned valuable nitrogen factory in violation of international law. The PCIJ sided with Germany and pronounced the famous dicta on reparation. Importantly, the issue has been discussed at length by the General Assembly, especially in the context of the calls for a new international economic order in the 60s and 70s, and discuss also compensation. Today's focus is on the scope of the protected investment and what constitutes an expropriation, and especially an indirect expropriation. In international law, international, in public international law, states are generally allowed to expropriate, though this is generally framed in the negative in applicable treaties, meaning that treaty generally says, says that expropriation cannot be done unless certain requirements are met. The issue for investment protection is what constitutes a lawful expropriation, which means that it must contain certain characteristics, and namely four. First, it has to be done for public purposes. Two, in a non-discriminatory fashion. Three, in accordance with due process of law. And has to be, four, promptly compensated. IIL instruments like BITs and IIS include almost invariably such provisions. For example, the Energy Charter Treaty states, Article 
that investments of investors of a contracting par party in the area of any other contracting party shall not be nationalized, expropriated, or subjected to a measure or measures having equivalent to na nationalization or expropriation, except, and here is the negative, where such expropriation is A, for a purpose which is in the public interest, B, not discriminatory, C, carried out under due process of law, and D, accompanied by the payment of prompt, adequate, and effective compensation. Similar clauses exist in essentially all the BITs and international investment agreements. The ECT includes, as do most current AAAs also do, the, the so-called HAL formula for compensation, named after the U.S. Secretary of State who formulated it in 1938 in the context of compensation for U.S. citizens affected by Mexican land reform. Compensation is important because even legal expropriation need to be compensated. And thus, compensation has been debated at length, including, for example, the 1962 General Assembly Resolution named 1803 over permanent, uh, permanent sovereignty over natural resources, which said that nationalization, expropriation, and requisition shall be based on grounds of reason of public utility, security, or the national interest, and be paid appropriate compensation. And again in 1974, again within the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States, uh, which required appropriate compensation for nationalization, taking into account all circumstances, but looking here at domestic law and domestic tribunals. Often questions resolved by BIT specifically use Lex Specialis, which provide for the type of compensation, normally the HAL formula, of prompt, adequate, and effective compensation. Many arbitral tribunals have tackled the issue of expropriation. Direct expropriation consists of a mandatory legal transfer of the title to the property or its outright physical seizure. In the past, direct expropriation has occurred in relations mostly to natural resources, for example, in the late 60s and 70s, Examples include the expropriation and nationalization of Libyan oil concessions. More recently, in Letko versus Liberia, a case concerning timber exploitation concession, an arbitral tribunal found in 1986 that the unilateral revocation of a concession was not for a bona fide purpose, was discriminatory, and was not accompanied by an offer of appropriate compensation. Similarly, in Fonecotter versus Zimbabwe, an arbitral tribunal found that Zimbabwe had expropriated the claimant's investment in a commercial farm by means of a government land acquisition program, as well as actual physical invasion. Direct expropriation, however, so the instances in which the legal title itself is affected by the allegedly expropriated measures, are nowadays uncommon. The focus now is much more on indirect or creeping expropriation and of these more specifically on regulatory expropriation. Indirect expropriation may occur when a new indirect measure, such as regulatory framework, may adversely impact an investor or the owner is deprived of its ability to manage, use, or control its property in a meaningful way, without the legal title being really affected. What are the consequences of public acts which leave the title intact but deprive the investor of a meaningful way to use it. The question is when these new measures may amount to expropriation. The answer is not easy, and to evaluate the allegedly expropriatory acts of the state, one has to analyze the effect of the act 
the intensity of the interface, and whether the loss of property was partial or full. Such questions have been assessed by numerous tribunals. In PSEG versus Turkey, for example, a 2007 case related to an electric power generation station, the arbitral tribunal observed that there was no doubt that indirect expropriation can take many forms, yet there must be some form of deprivation of the investor in the control of the investment, the management, day-to-day -day operations, or other kinds of interference or deprivation. The tribunal finally held in favor of the state that though things were handled sometimes wrongly, they did not amount to indirect expropriation. In Generation Ukraine versus Ukraine, a case related to the construction of an office building, the tribunal rejected the claimant's argument and noted that the fact that an investment had become worthless obviously does not mean that there was an act of expropriation in the words of the tribunal. Investment always entails risk, nor is it sufficient for the disappointed investor to point to some governmental initiative or inaction which might have contributed to his ill fortune. Another example, in Total versus Argentina, the tribunal explained that under international law, a measure which does not have the features of a formal expropriation could be equivalent to an expropriation if an effective deprivation of the investment was caused. An effective deprivation, the tribunal said, requires a total loss of value of the property, such as when the property effect is, is rendered worthless by the measure, even if the former title continues to be held. The threshold is therefore high. A specific and increasingly important kind of indirect expropriation is what is called the regulatory expropriation, which relates to the specific regulatory or police powers of the state. It is a growing importance of more investment also relates to issues in which states have an intrinsic and natural interest to regulate, including, for example, environment or health issues. The concern expressed by some critics is the state may refrain from regulating because they might be concerned that measures that promote public health may be deemed to be in violation of obligations under VATs and thus open them also to possible liability in ISDS setting. Some interesting cases have explored the issue. Perhaps the most interesting and probably best known case related to public health was brought by Philip Morris Switzerland against Uruguay. Uruguay in 2006 enacted strong anti-smoking legislation, including measures to restrict different types of packaging from the same brand of cigarettes, and also measures requiring a covering of at least 80% of the cigarette package with images warning of the risk of smoking. These measures were challenged in 2010 by Philip Morris under the Switzerland-Uruguay BIT. Philip Morris claimed that the measures impaired the use and enjoyment of its investment and resulted in the partial expropriation of its investment. In response, Uruguay argued that the case was entirely about protection of public health, not interference with foreign investment. And they were adopted for the single purpose of protecting public health and were applied in a non-discriminatory manner and they amounted to a reasonable, good-faith exercise of Uruguay's sovereign prerogatives. The tribunal agreed with Uruguay on all substantive issues and dismissed all claims. Importantly, the tribunal also noted at the outset that the parties did not dispute that smoking represented a serious health risk and held that there was a consistent trend in favor of differentiating the exercise of police powers from indirect expropriation and that whether a measure may be characterized as an expropriation depending on the nature 
and on the purpose of the action of the state. Recent BITs include specific provision on the matter. For example, in the US-Korea uh, FAT of 2012, there's a provision that says that, except in rare circumstances, non-discriminatory regulatory action by a party that are designed and applied to protect legitimate public welfare objectives, such as public health, safety, the environment, do not constitute indirect expropriation. You would find such uh, provisions in other recent BITs. Another issue to consider when assessing claims for expropriation is the requirement that the expropriation itself is for public purpose. And generally, tribunals have respected the public interest designation by respondent, and sometimes, however, they have wondered whether an in-depth analysis is needed. In Goetz versus Burundi, for example, the tribunal found that in the absence of an error of fact or law, or an abuse of power, or a clear misunderstanding of the issue, it is not the tribunal's role to substitute its own judgment for the discretion of the government of what are imperatives of public needs. But in ADC versus Hungary, the tribunal noted that public interest requires some genuine interest of the public. They noted that if the mere reference to public interest could magically put such interest into existence, it would thus satisfy the requirement, it would make the requirement itself meaningless. A related by separate legal standard of protection, generally afforded to foreign investors by state, is the insurance of fair and equitable treatment, also called FET. The standard is broad and fact-specific. It is also heterogeneous, and a developing standard that is often used in practice, as Dawson and Schroer argue, to fill gaps which may be left by the more specific standards in order to obtain the level of investors' protection intended by the treaty. The definition of FET is treaty-specific, and wording is important. For example, under the ECT, each contracting party shall, in accordance with the provision of the treaty, encourage and create stable, equitable, favorable and transparent conditions for investors of other contracting parties to make investments in this area. Such conditions shall include a commitment to accord at all times to investment of investors of other contracting parties fair and equitable treatment. Several tribunals have attempted to define the content of the FET standard more accurately. In MTD versus Chile, for example, a case concerning the construction of a residential and commercial complex in Chile by a Malaysian investment company and its Chilean subsidiary, claimants had secured some land for the construction of the complex, which was originally earmarked as agriculture, but which the Chilean authorities had assured the investor would be rezoned. The commission in charge of rezoning, however, refused to rezone when claimants requested it, stating that it was contrary to Chilean law. Claimants then initiated proceedings against Chile for violation of several treaty provisions, including the FET. The arbitral tribunal, in siding with claimants, clarified broadly the content of the provision and observed that fair and equitable treatment should be understood to be treatment in an even-handed and just manner conducive to fostering the promotion of foreign investment. Its terms are framed as a proactive statement to promote, to create, to stimulate, rather than prescriptive as a for a passive behavior of the state or avoidance of prejudicial content to the investor. In another case, Jenin versus Estonia, the tribunal rejected claimant's argument under FET and held that Estonia's central bank had been right in cancelling the operating license of a bank in which claimants were shareholders. 
he concluded that Estonia had in fact acted as a prudent supervisor of the bank sector, and ample grounds existed for its actions. In reaching this conclusion, the Tribunal observed that acts within the FET would include acts showing willful neglect of duty, or an insufficient of action falling far below international standards, or even subjective to bad faith. Given the general nature and fact-dependent nature of the FET standard, several tribunals have found it particularly helpful to define it in relation to the typical factual situation in which the principle was applied. Of particular relevance is the protection of the legitimate expectation of the investor, which are normally based on specific assurances and undertakings by the host state. So, in, in CMS versus Argentina, the tribunal found that Argentina had failed to provide fair and equitable treatment to CMS, an American investor, when it enacted an emergency law that suspended and then terminated certain guarantees for price adjustment for the transportation of natural gas. In reaching this decision, the tribunal observed that there can be no doubt that a stable legal and business environment is an essential element of fair and equitable treatment. Here, the measures that are complained of did in fact entirely transform and alter the legal and business environment under which the investment was made. In 2006, the year after CMS was decided, the arbitral tribunal in Saluka versus the Czech Republic similarly provided similar interesting analysis. The tribunal determined that under the fair and equitable treatment standard, a foreign investor in the Czech Republic is entitled to expect that the Czech Republic will not act in a way that is manifestly inconsistent, non-transparent, unreasonable. So, they're unrelated to some rational policy or discriminatory or non-justifiable distinction. And further, that the investor's legitimate expectation when making the investment, it was considered objectively, would not be frustrated. Beside the legitimate expectation criteria, other relevant situations in which the FET standard has been applied include consistency, stability and transparency, due process, good faith, non-discrimination, and stability. More recently, we have seen somehow a recalibration of the protection in favor of the state, in line with more recent developments in investment law, in which states are reasserting an investment tribunal reaffirming states' police and regulatory power vis-à-vis -vis a foreign state. Under certain more recent treaties, for example, particularly those newly negotiated by the U.S., the investor is guaranteed under the FET standard a minimum standard of treatment under customer international law. This standard offers a somehow a lower standard of protection to the investor, which for some is limited under the near doctrine to the act should be amount to an outrage, to bad faith, to a willful neglect of duty, or to insufficiency of a governmental action so far short of international standard that every reasonable man will readily, readily recognize it is sufficiency. In International Thunderbird, the tribunal held that the content of the minimum standard should not be rigidly interpreted, and it should reflect evolving international customary law. Notwithstanding the evolution of customary law since decisions such as NEAR in 1926, the threshold for finding a violation of the minimum standard of treatment still remains high. In the tribunal views, acts that would give rise to a breach of the minimum standard of treatment proscribed by NAFTA and customary international law, for example, as those weighted against the given factual contest amount to a gross denial of justice or manifest arbitrariness falling below acceptable inter accepted international standards. In addition to rules on expropriation and FET, 
and other protections which are often included in, in BITs are clause promising full protection and security to foreign investors and their investments. Traditionally, the full protection and security standard protects the investor against various types of physical violence, including the invasion of the premises of the investment, for example. Physical security of the investor's property includes protection against violence by both private violence and by state organs. Investors also usually enjoy full protection and security from physical violence and harassment, for example, from rioting or police. Several tribunals have examined the full protection and security standard in depth, including AMT versus Zaire and the Wen Hotel versus Egypt. This protection is in certain treaties also extended to legal security. Other provisions protect investors against discrimination based on the origin of the investment or investment and arbitrary treatment. Most treaties will also include a provision that guarantees most favored nation, MFN, and national treatments of investor, that extending all guarantees offered to other investors, including domestic investors, to national or signature countries. National treatment to foreign investors and in their investment so that their investments are accorded treatments that are no less favorable than those which the host state gives to its own domestic investor. Other provisions protect investors against discrimination based on the origin of the investor or investment and arbitrary treatment. Most treaties will also include a provision that guarantees most favored nation, MFN, and or national treatments to investors, thus extending all guarantees offered to other investors, including domestic investors, to nationals of signatory countries. National treatment to foreign investors and their investment so that their investments are accorded treatment that are no less favorable than those which the host state gives to its domestic investors. This standard is subjective and fact-specific also. In application of this standard, the host state must not distinguish between foreign and national investors on the basis of nationality when passing and applying rules and regulation. The MFN clause guarantees that parties to a treaty treat each other in a manner that is at least as favorable as how they treat third parties. Investors are also protected against any denial of justice in domestic proceedings. Some investment treaties also include an umbrella clause which require host states to observe any obligation they may have with regards to investments by nationals of the other party. Typically, these clauses elevate investment contract violations to a violation of the BIT and thus make the violation actionable through investor-state arbitration. Most investment treaties also require that investments, foreign investments, be made in accordance with the law of the host state. Several tribunals have explored the issue and denied jurisdiction in cases in which the investor or the foreign investor violated local law. In Fraport versus Philippines, for example, the tribunal held that Fraport had knowingly and intentionally circumvented certain domestic legislation limiting foreign shareholding in public utility enterprises, and thus had not made an investment in accordance with local law as required by the applicable Germany-Philippines BIT. The tribunal therefore found it lacked jurisdiction, ratione materie, to hear the case. Similarly, in Incensas versus Salvador, the tribunal found that because Incensas' investment was made in a manner that was clearly illegal, it was not included within the scope of consent spread by Spain and the Republic of El Salvador in the BIT, and consequently, the disputes arising from it was not subject to the jurisdiction of the tribunal. 
In World Duty Free versus Kenya, the tribunal held that an investor could not complain of violation of a contract which was procured by bribery, holding that bribery was contrary to the international public order, thus the foreign investment was not covered and it had no jurisdiction. I hope this gives a sufficient overview of the substantive principles that distinguish IIL. In Lecture 3, I will focus on the unique dispute resolution mechanism that exists in IIL, and namely international investment arbitration. In Lecture 4, I will talk about some of the criticism that IIL and ISD has faced recently, and talk about the ongoing reform process. Thank you, and I hope to see you in Lecture 3.